0: amen amen don't you agree that sometimes people who are maybe otherwise pretty smart are capable of believing some really dumb things You've all met people like that. I know a guy who sincerely believes that the world is flat. And I would not offend you for anything if you believe the world is flat. Like, I've been to the beach too. I know it just drops off. So make a good case for it. I know some people who believe that they really are going to get rich playing the lottery. And I know that may be a sore spot for some of y'all. But I just want you to know you have like a greater likelihood of being killed by a vending machine than you do actually winning lottery. People believe some dumb stuff, growing up as a kid, most of us believe that chocolate milk came from brown cows, right? We just sometimes we believe really, really dumb things. I remember being told as a kid, and I believed that if I made ugly faces, that my face would stay that way did they Did they tell you all that, and they probably also told you they told me that if if I lie, my nose would grow like pinocchio, right. I figured that out, though. What that was was just the grown-ups in my life were trying to prepare me to live in a world with a weird-looking face. That's what that was. Just brace yourself and be prepared. It's not that funny, Ricky. <laughs> but if if the Bible is true, and at Sharon Heights we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, if the Bible is true, then one of the dumbest things a person could ever believe is that they could earn their approval before God through their works. One of the dumbest things anybody could ever believe, according to Scripture, is that they would somehow be good enough with the things that they do to really impress God. And yet, that's precisely what most of us believe. That's what most people in Baptist churches today or in temples all over the world, that's what most people believe. Today, we are going to look at a passage of Scripture that tells us as clearly as any place in the Word of God that that is not true. That God does not save us by how we behave, but God saves us through a message that we believe I'm going to show you that today in Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 15. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's totally okay. We have the words up on the screen, but I do want you to try and follow along as we read the Word of God and study it together. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 15, I'll ask when you find your place, if you would please stand with me. We want to honor God's Word and make sure that we are listening to what God tells us When we gather together into the house of God. Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 15. Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Think about that statement. But now notice verse 1 of chapter 3. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Then Paul interrupts himself, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. You can be seated. And I believe the Lord is going to speak to us through this awesome, awesome passage of Scripture. Now, if you were here with us last week as we started going through the book of Galatians, you remember that I told you the Apostle Paul is writing this book in response to... To a threat in the church. He loves the church of Galatia. He founded the church of Galatia. But now some false teachers have come into this church family, and they are sowing a message of deceit and destruction, and Paul springs into action to try and head this off as quickly as possible. And the false doctrine was coming from a group called Judaizers. They were Jewish teachers who came in and told the Christians in Galatia, listen, it's great that you believe in Jesus. But if you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to be a real follower of Jesus, if you really want all the blessings of God, if you really want the full approval of God and everything that God has for you, then you have to be a Jew first. At the very least, you have to be circumcised before you come to Jesus to be a true Christian. So Paul sees the error in that, that these people really are teaching that Jesus is not enough to save. And Paul jumps into this, not because of a mere doctrinal disagreement. Christians have those. He doesn't jump into this because there's just different cultural preferences. Christians have those. He jumps into this because there is real confusion about how God saves. And Paul says, I've got to set the record straight. And he is worried because he knows that even the most devout, most mature Christians can be confused about this point. In fact, we saw last week in verses eleven through fourteen of chapter two how even Simon Peter was living in a way that was kind of out of harmony with the message of the gospel. Simon Peter was a Jew, but Simon Peter would gladly have lunch with anybody that would sit down at the table with him, whether they were Jew, Gentile, black, white, red, all over. It didn't matter. Peter would hang out with them, but when certain religious leaders of the Jews were in town, Paul would back or Peter would back away. From the unclean Gentiles. Because he didn't want those religious people to judge him. He didn't want those religious people to look down on him and think that he was doing something wrong. And Peter's behavior in Galatians chapter 2 that Paul writes about. This shows us a great picture of what religion without Jesus always does to people. It divides. It creates a class system. It elevates some people at the expense of other people. It empowers people to excuse their sin and act like hypocrites. It creates pride in some, doubt in others, and confusion for all. And so Paul comes along in verse 14, and he says, Peter, what you're doing is out of harmony with the gospel. And it's possible that here in verse number 15, where we started today, that Paul is continuing this conversation with Peter. It could be that Galatians 2.15 is part of what Paul told Peter, but it's certainly what he wanted the Galatians to hear. And it's what he wants us to hear, where he gets into the nuts and bolts of the gospel message itself, and says, here's how God saves, not by your works, but through faith in Jesus. Last week we showed how Paul highlights the difference between true and false Gospels. In this passage of Scripture, Paul is going to highlight the difference between faith and works. And he's going to show us that God saves us by faith, not through works. And how those two things really can't be mixed, or you lose both of them. And I want to give you that today as we look at three principles that I want to draw out of the verses we've read in this text. First, at the end of chapter 2, in verses 15 through 21, is this principle, that when it comes to our salvation, Jesus does everything, or He does nothing. Jesus does everything, or He does nothing. So Paul starts off by saying this plain ethnic truth in verse number 15. He says, we are Jews. Now, he's not talking about we are Jews. He's talking about they, we are Jews. Paul was a Jew. Peter was a Jew. He says, we are Jews and not Gentile sinners. There should be probably scare quotes around that phrase. That's the way people talked about the Gentiles. We're not these Gentile sinners. We're just regular sinners. You know, we're just Jewish sinners. We're not that bad. But he says, even though we are Jews, he said, we know what the Old Testament has said. And we know, because we are Jews, that a person is not saved by keeping the Jewish law. Which is why he says what he does in verse number 16. He says, we are not justified by the works of the law. Paul is so adamant about this that he says the same thing three times in Galatians 2.16, right? Because repetition is the best way to teach something. And since repetition is the best way to teach something, and because repetition is the best way to teach something, Paul says three times, we are not justified by the works of the law. We are justified by faith alone. So can he be any more clear? Now, before we can go any further today, we have to define the word justification. I walked into one of the little kids' Sunday school classes right before they started today because I was just trying to cause some trouble, you know. Get them good, fire, good and fired up and turn them over to their teacher. And one of the little girls asked me, she said, what are you preaching about today? And I tried to, you know, just soft sell it, uh, preach about Jesus. Um... She said, no, what are you preaching about? I said, about 45 minutes. But She said, no, what story are you preaching from? I said, I'm not preaching from a story. I'm preaching from Galatians 2 and 3. I said, I'm preaching about justification. And I wrote it on the board in their class. I said, do you know what it means? I said, let me define it for you. Because if you don't understand what justification means, you're not going to understand the Bible. All right. I think the word justification is probably the most important word in the Bible. But I know it's a big word. It's a complex word, and we have it in our minds. I can't understand a big five-syllable word like justification. Well, listen to me. Buy one, get one free. That's five syllables too. And you know what that means. So you can know what the word justification means, okay? The word justification or justify or justified means to declare righteous. The word justify means to declare righteous. This is the question at the heart of the gospel. It is the question at the heart of scripture. What does someone have to do to be declared righteous before God? It's the most important question in your life, even if you've never thought to ask it or answer it. What do you have to do to know that when you stand before God, your judge, and answer for your life, God will accept you and welcome you and say you are not guilty. How can you be declared righteous? That's what Paul's getting at here in this text of Scripture. This is a legal term. It's legal terminology. It wants us to think about God as our judge and how we can stand before our judge and be acquitted. That's why many theologians have used the term forensic justification. Because forensic has to do with court and law and legal issues. In fact, the word forensic comes from a Latin word that means before the court. And some of y'all like those forensic evidence shows on TV, right? Amy really, really likes those shows. So we'll, a lot of times right before we go to bed, we'll be watching this show where somebody kills their husband. And she'll get away with it for, you know, she'll get away with it for 10 or 15 years. And then they'll find some evidence that'll tie her to the crime. Then the next night we'll watch some other lady kill her husband. And she'll get away with it for 20 years. And then they'll find a different piece of evidence. So I think what Amy's trying to do is just figure out, how did they get caught? How can I get away? And I don't, I don't really think that. I don't, I'm not really being serious. But I just want you all to know, if something ever should happen to me, just remember I told you this. But what does that piece of evidence do? That, that hair they find at the scene of the crime. The detective takes that and they present it to the court, right? That's what the word forensic means. It means to present to the court. So before the high court of the universe, before the judge of all people, before the God we will all answer to because He made us, how do we know that He will declare us righteous? The stock answer for most people, regardless of where they lived, regardless of when they lived, regardless even of what God or gods they believed in or what religion they embraced, most people say God declares people righteous who are righteous. That's what a Muslim would tell you. They may define that righteousness differently than other religions. That's what most Christian people would tell you. That's what most Baptists by name would probably tell you. God declares us righteous. If we are righteous, a Muslim defines it by praying five times a day, going to Mecca and confessing his faith in Allah, the true God, and Muhammad is true prophet. Good old boy from Jefferson County defines righteousness by, you know, not cussing in front of the preacher, loving his mom in America. Right? That's, that's what it takes. That is the ingrained setting of most people. God declares us righteous if we are righteous. And here's the bombshell Paul offers. God does not declare us righteous because we are righteous. He declares us righteous because we have looked outside of ourselves into Jesus who is righteous. Paul says that's what it means for us to be justified that nobody has ever been good enough, righteous enough, holy enough, Muslim enough, Catholic enough, Baptist enough, or whatever enough to really impress God and win God over. But Christ Himself came, as Paul said, He kept the law in our place. He was broken by the law at the cross in our place so that if we would look to Him, we would have His righteousness. And God would look at us and justify us and say, that person is as righteous as Christ Himself. That's what Paul means when he talks about justification. So we have to understand about ourselves today. We are not as impressive as we would like to believe. That the problem we have to overcome to have a relationship with God is a legal problem. We've got this problem with the law. You see Paul writing about the law and legal terminology all throughout this, all throughout this text. Because we're not as good as we want to believe. We want to believe we're good enough to win the judge over. But if we're really, really honest, we're not as great as we want to believe. Like every single one of you have had that internal struggle when the offering plate comes by. Because you had a 20 in there. And you had a 5 in there. We're not as impressive as we think we are. And so how do we know when we stand before God that we are going to be acquitted? How do we know? that we are going to be set free. Every religion in the world says, here's a list of rules you can keep, and if you do it, God will grant you salvation. The Gospel says that Christ came and kept the rules for us. That Christ came and obeyed in our place. And Christ gives us His righteousness, which means now that for every single person who has looked to Jesus by faith, that they can look ahead to that day when they stand before God and they can hear Him say, you are not guilty. And you will go free. And friend, that is yours as often as you want it. In every struggle, in every trial, on every bad day, on every good day, you can know that God does not love you more because of how good you are. And He does not love you less because of how sorry you are. But there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law has been satisfied. In Christ, we have a totally new relationship to the law, which is what Paul is going to say beginning in verse number 17. Now, verse 17, 18, and 19, they're a little bit complicated maybe to understand. But here's what I think Paul's getting at. What Paul's getting at is that we need a new relationship to the law if we are going to have a relationship with God. We've got to overcome this legal obstacle. And so Paul says, look, if if God really isn't saving us by faith, does that make Christ out to be a servant of sin? Are we preaching a false gospel? Are we making it so that Jesus makes us better sinners? No, Paul says. But then he says, if I rebuild what I tore down, which is the message of the law, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Then he says this, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Folks, if you want to know the difference between what religion says and what the biblical message of salvation says, I don't know of any better way to say it than the phrase Paul uses right there. Because what religion says is that you have to live for God. What the gospel says is that you can be made alive to God. And folks, the difference between those ideas is the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between doubt and Peace. It's the difference between uncertainty and assurance that God, yes, he does want me to live for him, but only after I have been made alive to him. So how have I been made alive to him? Well, Paul says that what's happened is that I have died to the law. Notice what he says in verse number 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might be alive to God. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying the work of the law, the law worked in my heart to make me realize I can never keep the law. The law made me guilty. The law showed me I could never be good enough. And so eventually, the law worked in me to the point where I looked outside of myself to someone else to save me. And he says, when I looked to Jesus to save me, in that moment, God looked at me as if I had died in Christ. And if I am dead in Christ, here's Paul's logic, if I am dead in Jesus, then the law can make no more demands of me like this. There are people right now in the state of Alabama that are on our death row. And the law of the state of Alabama can and will kill those people because they broke the law. But as soon as they are dead, as soon as their heart stops and they're declared dead by that doctor, the law can make no more demands of them. They are at that moment square with the house. Now they'll have to answer to God, sure, but as far as Alabama's concerned, Alabama can't do anything else to them. Why? Because they're dead. Paul says, here's what happens when we come to faith in Christ. He said it's much more than getting this free ticket to heaven. He said what happens when we come to faith in Christ is that God looks at us as if we are as dead to the law as Jesus was when they put him in his tomb. And yet, we are as alive to God as Jesus was on Easter morning. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying on the one hand, yes, we are totally dead to the demands of the law, but we are totally alive to God. Which is why Paul says, look, even though I am dead in Jesus, he said, I'm still very much alive. But he said, this life is not my life anymore. He said, this life is Jesus' life lived out in me. Why, he says in Romans 6, 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul says there's an old part of us that has died and there's a new part of us that is as alive as Jesus. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Do you see what Paul's getting at here? I hope you understand the weight of this. He's saying that really... Christianity is not about a life you give to God. It's about the life of Jesus that God gives to you. Christianity really is not a gift that you give to God. It is a gift that He gives to you. Where you become, as it were, totally wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And in the work of Jesus. So that God treated Christ at the cross the way He should have treated you and that now God can treat you the way that He should have treated Jesus because of His faithfulness. So that God judged Jesus as guilty so that you could be free. So that God judges you as dead to the law because Christ died under the law, but He judges you as alive to Him because Jesus is alive to Him. That's what the gospel offers us. It means that we have more than just some kind of experience in church, that we have more than just a list of demands that we keep. We have more than just a cultural faith that's handed down to us by our parents and our grandparents, but we actually have a living, breathing relationship with God because we have a living, breathing Savior who has taken us into himself. And Paul says that every bit of this is the result of God's love in verse number 20. I am crucified with Christ. He says, it is no longer I who live. But he says now this life I live I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said the reason God would do every bit of this is because he loves me. Do you know what religious people believe? This may be this may be the hair's breadth worth of, hair's breadth worth of intellectual difference between the nature of the true gospel and what religious people believe. Religious people believe that God is a God of love. And Christians, true biblical Christians, believe that God is a God of love. The difference is that religious people believe that God's love has to be earned. And God's love comes and goes. Paul says to us in this passage of Scripture, he says that God loved me. And he sent Christ. He gave Christ for me. Even with my guilt. Even with my sin. God displayed His love in Christ. Not when I was a saint, Paul said, but when I was a sinner. And for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus, folks, this is the solid ground we stand on. This is the anchor of our soul. That Christ came in love for us. That the love of God is not measured by things that are happening to me in life. And the love of God certainly is not measured by how I feel about the love of God. But the love of God is measured for me at the cross of Jesus. Where God in His Son poured out His love as God the Father poured out His wrath. So I know that some of you today are in circumstances right now where it looks like with your job and with your family and everything that's happening, surely God can't love me or this would not be happened. Listen to me, my circumstances do not prove to me the love of God. And some of you look back over your life and you see shame and guilt and regret and you think there's no way God could love me after all that I've done. So that even if my circumstances, even if my circumstances may not satisfy my conscience, And even if my good deeds may not silence the devil who accuses me, the cross puts an end to every argument against the love of God because the cross says forever that this God loved us even unto death and he loved us enough to save us and to make us alive. But Paul says this in verse 21. And some of you religious people who've only ever had religion in the South, you need to notice what Paul says in verse number 21. He says that God saves us completely and totally through the work of the cross. That's how God saves His people. When they believe this message, embrace this man, that's where God saves. But Paul says this, if we can be saved by our good deeds, Jesus died in vain. Think about that argument. If you can be good enough to save yourself, if you can be good enough to earn your righteousness before God, then why in the world did Jesus die? Why did He die? So that means, on the one hand, that you are so hopelessly lost that Jesus had to die. But it also means that you were so totally loved that Jesus wanted to die to save somebody like you. But please understand that. Because some of you have heard your whole life that Jesus died for you. Jesus loved you. Jesus came to save sinners through His death. But you also believe that somehow part of this is on you. Both of those things cannot be true. Jesus does everything or He does nothing. Are you trusting Him to do everything for you? Second principle today. Paul begins in verse number 1, working through verse number 6 of chapter 3. He says, With Jesus we continue how we start. With Jesus we continue how we start. Now Paul is worried about the Galatians. He says they're foolish in verse number one. That's not an accusation he just throws out there lightly. But then he says in verse number one, he said, who who bewitched you? He said, you have been hypnotized. Somebody has put a spell on you. What happened to you? And he said, you clearly haven't thought through all of the implications of what you're saying. If you believe that, that you're saved kind of by Jesus, but somehow you're standing before God depends on things that you do. He said, you haven't really thought through what that means. So Paul wants them to think through what that means. And he does that by asking them a series of rhetorical questions. Verse number two. The first one is, did you receive the Spirit of God by the works of the law or by faith? How did the Spirit of God come to live inside of you? Now, unfortunately today, when we talk about the Spirit of God in a lot of places in church, you kind of find an uphill battle because the Spirit of God has just kind of become this like trinket that people want to have when they come to church so they can have a good time in church. But the Spirit of God is not Christian crack who gets us high when we come to church. The Spirit of God is the third person of the Trinity. And the way New Testament believers primarily thought about the work of the Holy Spirit was they thought that the Spirit of God came inside of people when they believed the gospel. He was the living presence of Jesus inside of His people as proof that they had been accepted by God. Now, let's put this in the context of the entire Bible, okay, to understand it. If you remember the Old Testament, they were always going to the temple and tabernacle to get into the presence of God. It was located at one place, right? And they would always want to be in the presence of God and have these feasts to go into the presence of God. They went to the temple to experience the presence of God. But Paul himself would say over and over again, Romans chapter 8 and verse number 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 16, Paul would say that now as believers, we do not go to a temple to get into the presence of God. We are the temple. And the presence of God is inside of us. Now for Gentiles, like the Galatians reading this, this was huge. Because in the actual physical structure in the Old Testament, they could not go in as far into the presence of God as the Jews could. Like they had to hang out on the porch, basically, is what it was. The Jews could go a little bit further, but even the faithful Jews, they could only go so far. And then only the priest, and then once a year, only the high priest could actually be in the literal presence of God on earth. It's like this. There are people that, that you love, that you're comfortable with, that you know, that if they knock on the door and show up at your house, you're not even going to get off the couch, little man. he's says, hey, yeah, yeah, come in. What's happening? Right? Then there are other people that come into your house. They knock on the door. You're not even going to open the door all the way to let them see in your house. You're going to slide out and you're going to talk to them in the driveway. Man, what are y'all doing here? Seriously, what are, y'all, what are you doing here? Because you're not comfortable giving them access. What Paul is asking the Galatians here is, how is it that God Himself gained access into you? How did you gain access into the fullness of the presence of God? Paul said, it's not when you were doing works of the law, it's when you believed in Jesus. That's when the Spirit of God came into your heart. And so Paul said, how could you possibly think that somehow there are still levels to accessing the presence of God based upon things that you do? Let me just go ahead and meddle a little bit. Because this is a trap that we fall into today still. We still today believe that there are some people that have more access than others. Maybe we have more access to God than others. We have more of a claim on God, not based upon believing the gospel, but based upon things that we've done. And I have seen this in the time that I've been a pastor. I've seen this in the way that people think that I have more access to God than they do because I'm a pastor. But let's let's just break it down to where we live, all right? I am a pastor. I don't have a single tattoo. I don't drink alcohol. I don't even have cable TV. But I do have Netflix. (laughs) And I have been known to smoke a cigar before and enjoy it. I'm just telling you, hey, we're all sinners, right? So that puts me, in the mind of some of you, that puts me a little bit deeper into the access of the presence of God than others. But that Netflix and cigar business? Let's back that on up a couple steps. That's the way that's the way we think, right? No, no, you can't be into the presence of God like that. Paul asks the question here. He says, in your relationship with God, is it really your work or is it God's work in you? He said, who's really doing the work? He said, it's Christ and His grace and nothing else. Then Paul asks another question. He says, verse 4, why did you suffer? He says, when you first believed in Jesus, you paid a price for that. People persecuted you, they hurt you for that. There were consequences for that. He said, why did you suffer that? He said, was it because you were still trying to keep the law? He's probably talking about persecution from Jews here. He said, those Jews weren't persecuting you because you were so Jewish. He said, they're persecuting you because you were undermining what they thought Judaism said. He said, no, they were persecuting you because you believed a message of grace. Then Paul just drops this bombshell just as he interrupts himself, really. Just as Abraham, he says, and he quotes Genesis 15, 6. He said, this is what God even did for Abraham. Abraham believed God and God counted him to righteousness. He says, Abraham's entire life... From the first moment he stepped out to follow God to all the growth and the maturity and the following God and the sacrifice and the faithfulness, every bit of that came because Abraham was a man who believed a message. He was a man who looked outside of himself and trusted the promise of God. And friends, that is the Christian journey from start to finish. It's not in our willpower and our strength and our keeping the rules and our behaving ourselves. It's not part of in believing in Jesus and in doing better. It is Christ from start to finish. It is the Spirit of God continually taking us back to Jesus. Making us righteous just as God in Christ has declared us righteous. Showing us the love of God. Transforming our hearts by grace and making us into a new people. Which Paul, On this point it takes us to the third principle. Which is one of the most important ideas in all the Bible. Here it is. The third principle that God has always been doing this kind of thing. God has always and only been doing exactly this way. Paul says in verse number 6, Abraham believed God and counted it. God counted it to him for righteousness. He says it this way in the terminology he's been using in Galatians. Abraham was justified by faith alone. And it almost seems like Paul just kind of says, you know, this proves my point, right? He says, I'm telling you about justification. Even Abraham was justified by faith But Paul's argument about Abraham here, he's not using this to prove the point to the Galatians. This is the point of Galatians. The Judaizers were saying, we deserve more access to God because of our DNA. We are Jewish. We are the sons of Abraham. His blood runs through our veins. We have the rituals that Abraham obeyed. The ritual of circumcision that God gave Abraham in Genesis 17 that is ours. You Gentiles don't have that. You're not as spiritual, you're not as godly, you are not as elite, you are not as important, you are not as good, you do not deserve as much God as us. Paul comes along to these people, and he says to them, he says, you might have the DNA of Abraham. He says, but you have not believed the message that Abraham believed with the same kind of faith that Abraham said. He said, you might be a Jew outwardly, he said, but you're not a Jew on the inside where it counts. Not like the first Jew was. Because God saved him, not by his works, but by his faith. In fact, he would argue this point in other places that really would have boggled their minds. God saved the first Jew when the first Jew was still a Gentile. He came to him when he was a pagan out there worshiping the moon. God showed up to Abraham and said, Abraham, follow me. And Abraham believed him and did. And so Paul says, your pride is a waste. Your arrogance, your works, they mean nothing. Because there's no faith in your heart. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. The book of Galatians is about a group of Jewish leaders who were saying, to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. And Paul comes along and says, no, if you want to be a true Jew, a true son of Abraham, you better believe in Jesus. Because it's only when you believe in Jesus that you can experience the blessings of Abraham. Now, our problem again is that we read the Bible as Americans. And so we don't think about the categorical differences between Jew and Gentile. We think about it in terms of You know, Southerners and Yankees. We think about it in terms of white folks and black folks. We think about it in terms of people like us and people who are different from us. But that's not the way they thought about it in the Bible. They thought about it in terms of Jews who knew God and Gentiles who were unclean. Gentiles who were dogs. Gentiles who were not welcome. Gentiles who you do not even act. The thing, you know, that, that little, oh it's got. I use it for radio, but you tell it, Alexa play whatever, whatever, and she'll play music and she spies on us and, and, you know, listens to all of our personal data. Sometimes I will make Alexa play bagpipe music and I will tell Scylla, I will say, honey, this is the music of our ancestors. This is our people. But look, God did not come to the Scots in their kilts and face paint and give them the Old Testament, did he? No, when they were out there dancing around rocks and worshiping fairies and playing their bagpipes, God was working thousands of miles away in the Jewish people. We are the unclean, unwelcomed, and unwanted people. Now, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt unwelcome? Have you ever felt unwanted? Have you ever felt unloved by certain groups of people who wanted to cast themselves off as better than you? Have you ever felt like you didn't belong in a church? Have you ever made to feel like maybe God does not want you, that you are too dirty, too unclean, something in your back? Objective guilt. Why do we feel so much shame? Why do we feel like something? Why do we feel like people may be judging us? Why do, we just, why do we have this internal sense that we are not good enough? Why are we trying to medicate our guilt away and go to psychotherapists that analyze our guilt away? Where does all this guilt come from? Do you know where your feelings of guilt come from? Your subjective feelings of guilt that you struggle with internally, they come from the objective reality that before God, you are guilty. Like, you really are guilty. But... Paul's going to say, in Christ, you are as welcome into the presence of God as Abraham, the friend of God, was. That you can experience every blessing that he had. This is one of the most stunning passages in all of the Bible, because in these verses, Paul is actually going to teach us that he's always been saving his people the same way. When they look to God, believe his promise, trust his word, and embrace his son... ...who may be the ethnic descendants of Abraham, who haven't believed what Abraham believed. Paul says those people are under a curse. Verse 10. It is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter number 27. And the Bible tells us there, and what it's getting at, is that anybody who wants to keep the law, you got to keep all of it. you got to keep all of it. If Brookside pulls you over for speeding, which they can and will do... They don't care. If you're doing 75 out here up Colberg Road, they don't care if you're wearing your seatbelt. They don't care if all your brake lights are working and your tags in date. They don't care. You've got to keep it all or you're guilty at all points. And Paul is saying that here. He's saying if we really want to save ourselves by our works... Do we have to keep the law in every detail. We have to dot every I and cross every T right into the level of our hearts. And so he's saying to us in this text of Scripture that all the law can ever produce, all we could ever earn by the law is a curse. All the law can ever do for us is give us guilt. All it could ever do for us is bring us judgment. And so Paul quotes the book of Habakkuk in verse number 11 and says, this is not how God saves the righteous live by faith. The just man is saved by his faith. Then he quotes Leviticus chapter 18 in verse number 5. In verse number 12, when he says, the one who does the law shall live by them. It's about all of life being totally devoted to God. But Paul said, that's impossible. You're not good enough to keep the law. What he's essentially saying is that faith and works are not compatible. You can't earn your way to God and trust Jesus. They're two radically different ways of accessing or thinking we can have access into the presence of God. That religion where I offer my works to God cannot mix with the gospel where Jesus offers His works to God. And I want you to hear that today. I know we've talked about a lot of difficult concepts. history, and A lot of big words. But I want you to hear me today. That religion and the gospel are not compatible. Because religion says, if you obey, then you will be loved. The gospel says, I am loved so I can obey. Religion says, God's love for you changes based upon what you do. But the gospel says, God's love for you is anchored in what Jesus did for you. Religion comes to you and it says, do. The gospel comes to you with one word and it says, done. The the religion comes to you and says, you better get started. Jesus says to us at the cross, it is finished. It's done. Which is why Paul gets into the nuts and bolts of how God actually saves us. In verse number 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. All the law would ever produce is death and destruction. Paul said about the law in 2 Corinthians 3, 7, that it was the ministry of death carved in letters of stone. The law pushes us away. It says we're not good enough because we're not. It says we can't earn it. It says we don't deserve it. It constantly comes at us with more and more and says, do more, try harder, and be better. The law kills and the law breaks us because we have all broken the law of God. And Paul said, this is where the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ changes everything. Because for people like us who have broken the law and for people like us who are broken by the law, Jesus himself was treated as a law breaker so that all the blessings of the law would be ours in him. Paul said our disobedience earns the curses of the law and that's all it would ever earn. And the disobedience we have in our hearts is like a dam that is keeping the blessings of Abraham from the world. But he said Christ at the law took those curses and he unleashed the flow of God's blessing on everybody who would put their faith in Jesus. That's what the cross is all about, friend. This is the divine logic of Christianity that God is able to look at me and see me as righteous as Jesus is right now. As sinful as I am, as bad as you blew it this week, with all the stuff you said when you lost your temper at work, just a few minutes ago, when you didn't put the $20 in the offer sack, God still looks at me and sees me with all my guilt and all my sin and all my shame. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. So you can bring on all the threats of the law, and they are all silenced at the cross. They're all satisfied forever there. You can bring on all the accusations of the devil. And some of you I know deal with that constantly. At least you think it's the devil. It might just be your conscience. Or maybe maybe you just have a good memory. You remember what you were like before God saved you. And you think to yourself, there's no way that I could ever really be made right with God. Take your mind and take the devil to the cross. And let the cross be the final word about what God says about you. And let all the accusations and the condemnation die there. What Paul's getting at here, and this has been a long way to get here, what Paul's getting at here is that the only thing I deserve, now y'all hang on, the only thing I deserve from God are curses. But in Jesus, the only thing I will ever get from God are blessings. That's what the gospel teaches us. Why? Because Jesus, who deserved nothing but blessings from God, experienced all of his curses that should have been mine at the cross. He became a curse for us so that we could experience the same kind of blessings that Abraham did. All of us Gentiles, as dirty and unclean with our backward thinking, with our sinful habits, Paul said, you are as welcome as Abraham. And folks, I'm going to tell you, if you look at people and you think about what people want and what people are after and what drives people, this is what people are after. They're not going to put it in these terms most of the time, but they're after the blessing of Abraham. And what I mean by that is this. If you study Abraham's life, Abraham was a man chosen by God. God just showed up and said, Abraham, come with me. He was chosen by God. He was a man loved by God. God gave Abraham stuff. Just gave it to him. It's just good to him. The Bible says that Abraham was a friend of God. The Bible says that they spoke basically face-to-face, the way I'm talking to you right now. Abraham heard God speak to him. And Abraham knew God heard him when he spoke. What are people really after in life? They're after really what is the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of having that kind of relationship with God. Folks, the only way that it will ever happen is through Jesus. And in Jesus, you are not only as welcome as Abraham, but you are as welcome as Christ himself. That is the blessing of the gospel. And that is a blessing that no Baptist church can ever give you. That is a blessing that no pastor and his preaching about how you need to do better can ever provide for you. That is a blessing that you could never earn on your own. But it is a blessing that Christ Jesus won For you at the cross. Now, today, anytime we hear the gospel of Jesus preached or presented, it finds all of us at different points in our lives, doesn't it? Some of you are here and you've never heard or maybe you've never understood the gospel message clearly. You really did always believe that this is about things that you do. But maybe today you've heard, hey, this isn't about what I do. It's about what Jesus did. You need to embrace Christ today. You need to look outside of your ability to be a good person, and you need to trust in Jesus. Others of you maybe are at a point in life right now where it feels like, man, there's no way God could love me. There's no way God would bless me. It just seems like all the evidence is to the contrary. Friend, I want you to know God's love for us is not proven by our circumstances. God's love is proven at the cross. I don't know God is blessing me because I have a pocket full of money. I know God has blessed me because of Jesus dying in my place. Some of you need to lay hold of that. Some of you especially need to lay hold of that because you have a guilty conscience that constantly condemns you, constantly accuses you, and you wonder, I know I believe in Jesus, but is that enough? Does God really accept me? Please know that all the demands of God, they were satisfied at the cross. And God says, as far as I'm concerned, you're square with the house. Not only that, not only are you square with the house, but God says you are now a son, a daughter. You are my friend. That's what the gospel offers us. It offers us life with God. Life with God. Do you have that today? If not, you can. Let's stand together. Our musicians are coming. I'm going to invite you if you need the Lord in any capacity today, if you need Him at all, I'm going to invite you to come and just pour your heart out to Him. He knows what you're going through right now. Not only does He know what's happening to you in life, He knows what's happening in your mind at these moments. Come right now and say, Lord, I need you. Thank you.